My name is Molly Williamson. Although many of you who are involved with tapestry with my mom or who were greeted on the way into the church this morning by my dad may know me better as the daughter of Don and Joanne Williamson. I haven't been around the church very much for the past seven years because I went to college and in this, this past May, I graduated from Duke Divinity School with my Master's of Divinity. And this August, I will be going back down to Duke to begin my PhD studies in religion uh, with a focus on Old Testament. Let's read together from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This week, the big question of our summer series is about the Bible. Can we trust it? Isn't it just full of myths and contradictions? Inside and outside the church, there are presumptions about the Bible, and they are so pervasive that they're just sort of in the water, so to speak. You may have heard things on television or on the internet, or maybe from friends, about how we can't trust the Bible because it was written by people, because the manuscripts were manipulated by scribes with a particular agenda, or they were corrupted through the passage of time or because there are extra books or gospels that aren't included in our Bible. Usually these objections to the Bible are talked about as if they're part of a vast conspiracy, that there were some shadowy priestly figures in the past that have pulled one over on all of us. Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, is the master of this sort of conspiracy theory. But he and others have promoted this sort of atmosphere of suspicion with remarkable effectiveness. But I hope that as we walk through some of these questions, we can come to see that many of these doubts and questions can be allayed. And I think the best way to start with this is to tell you a little bit about my story and my own wrestling with these questions. I consider myself to be a native member of PCNP. My family moved here about five months before I was born, and I was practically raised within these walls. I was baptized in the sanctuary, I went through the ranks of preschool, vacation Bible school, Sunday school, youth club, online salt, and I was a senior intern. I went on retreats and mission trips, and I even preached my first sermon here as a graduating senior, as many of you might have. Almost from birth, all of you filled my life with the stories from the Bible with its language and its message, and you all fulfilled your promises made at my baptism to me. I left PCMP in 2006 and graduated from high school and moved away to attend college. There, I faced a challenge that many of you either have known or may know soon about. 
I found myself taken out of the only community of faith that I had ever known and put into a new place where I learned things that challenged the way that I had always thought and the way that I had always seen the Bible. This was perhaps most obvious during my junior year in college when I took an Old Testament class. I thought at the time that taking the class was a no-brainer. I studied literature in college, and I had known those Old Testament stories from the nursery, so what could be more natural? Only, I was a little shocked at what I found there. The class introduced me to the field of biblical studies and to a discipline called historical criticism. Now, historical criticism is a way of reading the Bible that attempts to understand it by reconstructing and examining its original setting and its original authorship and uh, original origins. And you might have heard some of the things that historical criticism or other forms of biblical scholarship have brought to light. Some of them may have troubled you. Some of them may have prevented people that you know, or perhaps you yourself, from believing in and trusting in the Bible. And I think we can become afraid of asking too many questions because we don't want these challenges. We don't want our faith to be shaken. At first, this was a jarring experience for me. The things I was learning seemed to be challenging the things that I had believed to my very core. But what I have found in studying and searching deeply in the company of fellow pastors, professors, and classmates is that the Bible is deeply satisfying intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually in ways that I hadn't even imagined. I don't think we should be afraid to question God or the Bible. I think God and God's word can handle it. But one of the first questions people often have about whether the Bible is trustworthy is questions about the years between us and the original authors of the Bible. After all, how do we know that what's in our Bible is what the original authors actually wrote? And as I said earlier, how do we know that their message hasn't been manipulated or changed throughout the years? Part of the problem with this question is that we don't have the original manuscripts. Ancient documents were often written on papyrus or animal skins, which are two materials that don't handle very well over thousands of years of use and weather. None of the original manuscripts have survived, so all we have are copied manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts that have been preserved throughout the years. This is true of virtually all ancient documents. We have to realize that perfect pres preservation of the original manuscripts is for all of these reasons an unrealistic expectation, and the lack of them is not evidence for suspicion. But of course, the reason then, the question then becomes, how do we know that these manuscripts are consistent with the original text? Now, I think we who live in an age of scanners and erasers and backspace keys don't understand the amount of care that was put into each of these manuscripts. Generations of people devoted their lives to the meticulous copying of these texts. The scribes who wrote them took an extraordinary amount of time and effort in their preservation and transmission. And the result is that among the thousands of manuscripts and fragments that we have from different times and places, 80 to 85% of all of them completely agree with one another. And this number rises even higher if you discount minor differences in spelling or punctuation. So with writers who took so much care in preserving the text's accuracy, and with the text being remarkably similar despite differences in time and space, we can be pretty confident that the text we have today is very close to the original text. 
Another question that you sometimes hear about the Bible is about secret books that were left out of the Bible. People usually think of this as evidence of some sort of conspiracy theory, but that is actually a serious misunderstanding of church history. What we know today is the canon, the 66 books that make up the Old and New Testaments, was finalized by the late 4th century. A conscientious determination of what would be considered authoritative was imperative to the early church because there were many letters and books that were circulating around in the first years and centuries of Christianity. We have some of them today, and you might have heard of some of them. The so-called Gospels of Peter and Thomas are two of the most well-known. But these are books are not included in your Bible because the church leaders, after prayer and discussion, decided that they were not reliable or inspired texts. But this was not, as Dan Brown might have you believe, a kind of power grab. It was done based on certain criteria. Books were approved or rejected based on three factors. Whether they had the link to an, a link to an apostle, whether they were widely used and accepted, which was so that fringe groups couldn't claim that they had some sort of secret gospel. And finally, whether what was contained in the book was consistent with the rest of scripture. The so-called secret gospels of the New or New Testament books that you hear about today were rejected from the canon for failing one or more of these tests. The books that we do have, on the other hand, were considered from the earliest days to be reliable testimonies to God and God's work in Christ. Assembling the canon was not a conspiracy. You can read about it in any church history book. Another thing that you often hear about the Bible is about its inconsistencies. You could find whole websites detailing all of the variations among the four Gospels. Usually people make lists like this, intending to show that the books conflict with one another and therefore are not reliable or trustworthy. And of course, it's true that there are a lot of differences between the Gospels. Even a relatively casual reader of the New Testament might notice that there are places where they say different things. Where Jesus is on the cross, for instance, he says in Matthew and Mark, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke tells us that he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And John says that he said, I thirst, and it is finished. These differences prove, according to the Bible's detractors, that the Gospels are not consistent, and therefore can't be trusted in their telling of Jesus' life and death. But I think part of the problem here is one of expectations. We expect that the Bible, and especially the Gospels, are going to be a comprehensive biography of Jesus, or like a newspaper report, or a history book that you might have read in high school. We expected that when we open the Bible, we're getting a play-by-play -play of what happened in Jesus' life. And if we have such expectations, when we're frustrated when the different accounts don't line up perfectly, because we suspect that that means that they're not accurate. We can try to force the Bible, which, as Jeff says, is a library of books, and it was written over thousands of years, we can try to make it resemble our contemporary writing and our modern genres. But the Bible contains a lot of different writing forms that operate with different literary rules than ours do. The Bible contains stories that sound like biography, contains poetry, contains theology, and many of the so-called inconsistencies can be understood more clearly in light of this. None of this means that the Bible is not true. It just might mean that such in the case as in the case of Jesus' words on the cross, 
we might be missing the point if we focus on the differences. The gospel writers weren't trying to be comprehensive about every single word that Jesus ever said or every single thing he ever did. John even acknowledges this at the end of his gospel when he says that Jesus did many other things and there isn't room enough in the world to fill them all. But the gospel writers did write what they thought was important. They were telling us about Jesus' life in a way and with the information that they thought would show us who he was in a way that was necessary for our salvation. And furthermore, most scholars believe that Mark was the first gospel to be written and that the others were built on or responded to Mark in writing their own accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And I think if you think of it that way, we might see that the gospels are meant to complement and build on one another to give us a fuller account of Jesus' life rather than they're meant to replace or correct one another. Together, they give us a full account of who Jesus was and what he did. Studying the Bible takes work, believe me. <laughs> but it's important work because we understand Scripture to be the word of God. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says that, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We don't believe, as Mormons do about the Book of Mormon, that the Bible came to us fully formed from heaven, or as Muslims do with the Quran, that our scripture was dictated to human beings as the literal word-by-word word, word of God. Rather, Second Peter tells us that the prophets and writers of scripture were human beings, and they wrote using human words. And they wrote in particular times and places using particular literary conventions. God, who spoke the whole world into being with words, chose to reveal himself through the mouths and pens of human beings who were led by the Spirit. It's just that we're so far removed across time and space that the Bible can sometimes seem foreign and strange to us. But I think you'll find, as so many men and women have throughout the centuries, that if you give it your time and attention, the Bible will speak to you about things that don't change, about human nature, the struggles of life, and the faithfulness of God. Because although Peter says that the writers of Scripture were human beings, he also says that they spoke through the Spirit, and they spoke from God. Our Scripture today might have sounded a little strange to you, the psalmist is almost giddy as he talks about scripture, calling God's law perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, and more precious than gold. To understand scripture this way, you first have to know it. You have to actually read it and experience it for yourself. You have to learn in your own life that its stories refresh the soul, that the psalms give light to the eyes, and that the stories of Jesus are more precious than gold. I learned this in a very real way during my time in seminary. After graduating from college, I went down to Duke. I hoped at the time to either become a pastor or to apply for doctoral programs with the hope of teaching, and I loved my time there. I was amazed at the faithfulness which I found in these bookish academics, and I struggled through my classes, especially Hebrew, but as I did, I discovered so much more beauty and depth in the scripture and in the Christian tradition than I had ever imagined. 
I made wonderful friendships and felt that I had truly found a place and a calling that I belonged to. But at the same time, as the years went on, I was struggling with some deep losses in my personal life. I was confronted and confused with them because I felt that I had followed God's call, but I was losing things and people that were so precious to me. I didn't know what God was doing in giving me good gifts and then taking them away so abruptly. I was confused and angry. And during that time, I remembered and read and reread and reread the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. Many of you know the story. God called Abraham to leave his father's house and all of his family, everything he knew, to go to a place that God would later show him. And God promised him that he would give him children and blessing. And Abraham journeyed for years with him and his wife childless, waiting on God's promise to come true. 25 years and one debacle with a slave girl later, Abraham and Sarah have their promised child, Isaac. And now that Abraham finally feels that he can rest on the promises of God, the ones that have finally come true, God gives him a fearful and terrifying command to take his son, his beloved one, and sacrifice him to God. And if you know the story, you know that Abraham obeys. He is prepared to sacrifice Isaac, and he even has the knife in his hand. But God stops him at the last minute and repeats his original promise to Abraham that he will give him land and blessing. Now that God knows without a doubt that Abraham fears God more than anything else, he will surely bless him. Now, I had known this story for as long as I can remember. One of you may have taught it to me on a flannel graph downstairs. But having experienced myself what felt like a betrayal on God's part and the need to sacrifice God's good gifts, I understood Abraham in a way I had never understood him before. And in understanding Abraham better, I understood my own situation and my own struggles with God much better. I found in Abraham an incredible living model of faith for myself. And I found in the story, and then my own story, a testimony to the faithfulness of God, even in our most fearful, breathless, and terrified moments. It taught me to trust God, no matter how confused and hurt I felt, just as Abraham had. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There have been times in my life when scripture has been all these things and more to me, and it can be for you too. Because what I love about the Bible is its honesty about human nature. I would encourage you to reread my favorite stories, the stories of the patriarchs, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and see if you see in them, as I do, the echoes of your own insecurities, your own fears, your own jealousy, your own highs of inspiration and faith and your own lows of despair and your own difficulty trusting in the promises of God when you've lived for years and not seen the fruit of them.
I think that when you see the Bible this way as your own story, and that you see that your story is part of a larger, more eternal story, you see that despite the way we try to use it, the Bible is not for people who want to pretend that they have it all together, because the Bible never pretends that things are perfect. Many, if not any, um, all of the so-called heroes of the Bible mess up, and sometimes their mistakes have grave consequences. They're not very far removed from us after all. And yet, Scripture shows us time and time again how God works in and through them in their sinfulness and fear to bring about God's good purposes. And being trained by the Bible in this way, to see our world this way, helps us to live in light of this fact, to both correct us and to give us hope. As I started studying Old Testament in college, and as I look to continue studying Old Testament for a very long time, I've been able to take something that once seemed juvenile to me, those simple, fantastic stories from my childhood, and seen that they actually contain and point to the most ultimate, beautiful truth ever known, that God made the world, that God made a covenant with God's people, and that God came down as a baby to bring us back to him. That God has been faithful to his creation and, all, and saved us from all that would separate us from him. And now God has given us his word, that with the help of the Spirit will shape us into the disciples of Christ that we are called and made to be. Ones who realize that the world that we live in is, as it is in those stories, full of the presence and majesty of God. If you give it the opportunity, I think that the Bible will show you yourself and the world in ways that even the best literature only faintly grasps at. It pulls back the veil so that we can see the world as it actually is, in light of God and God's action. It shows us the world colored with the presence, majesty, and beauty of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your life, your Son, who came to be with us, the Word. And Lord, we thank you for the Word that you have given us now, that we can continue to study, to learn more about you, to learn more of what you have done on our behalf and on behalf of the world, to learn more about ourselves, who we are, and what you will do with us. Lord, we thank you so much for this church. I thank you personally for the ways that the people here have blessed me and shaped me and formed me as a disciple of you and your son. I ask that you would give us guidance and wisdom in how to grow more in the knowledge of you as we read and digest and live into the scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.